from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, talking today about the Bible. I have written a blog uh, for the past several years, since 2006, shuckandjive.xyz. And I've written many posts over the years on many topics, much of the time about the Bible. And, uh, and every now and then, uh, well, quite often, actually, I'll get criticized because my views about the Bible are not correct. Uh, I, in fact, uh, I've been accused of not being a good Presbyterian minister or even a Christian because I don't believe in the Bible as it's supposed to be believed in. Um, you know, advocacy for gay rights. Well, that's bad. Not in the Bible. Not thinking Christianity is, you know, the best religion in the world or the only one. Not bad. Not in the Bible. Not thinking Jesus literally rose from the dead. Bad. Not in the Bible. Uh, thinking it's a bad idea of the extermination of the Canaanites to make room for the Israelites. No, Bible says it. God did it. That's the way we're supposed to look at it. Well, I am finding that a lot of people actually feel like I do, that the Bible is a book, a collection of writings, and some of it's good and some of it just isn't. And I think that's pretty honest, frankly, that it was a book reflecting the attitudes of people. Um, many of those things we find reprehensible today, and yet at the same time, many of those things are good. So it is refreshing to find evangelical biblical scholars taking on the Bible. My guest is Peter Enns. He's a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania, and he has written a book about the Bible. It's called The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. And he's with me via Skype uh, from Pennsylvania. Uh, welcome, Peter, to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. You know, I loved your book. Uh, it is very conversational. You're, you're funny. I would imagine that you are a very popular professor. <laughs> uh, not during finals time, but I think other times we get along pretty well with the students, so let's have a good time. Sure, yeah. Well, I, it, it, the book was, was uh, marvelous to read, uh, easy to read, uh, many moments of levity, and yet, of course, uh, teaching moments of, uh, of education here. Uh, how did this book come to be? Why did you decide to write um, The Bible Tells Me So? Well, um yeah, it's 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 uh, it's it's probably a very long story. A lot of it I'm not even conscious of. It's just years and years and years of thinking about the Bible and growing myself in understanding the Bible, and uh, roadblocks that I uh, kept coming up against, and that uh, I know other people have come up against too. So I wanted to write something. Um, positive about the Bible that also takes, I think, very seriously some well-known difficulties, well-known challenges to the Bible without feeling like I have to, like I have to defend the Bible, um, but without dismissing it either. And uh, it just sort of evolved, really, uh, over several years. And uh, you know, even as I was writing it, things were changing and morphing. So it was really a a work in progress reflecting a lot of my own journey, and I know the journey that many other people have had, too. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? You write about it in the first uh, few chapters of the Bible. Uh, how is it that you—what were the some of those roadblocks? What were those things that you needed to move through in your uh, understanding of the Bible? Well, uh, I mean, for example, um, you know, I attended seminary, a fairly uh, conservative seminary, but— uh, 
a good one, academically a very good one at the time, at least, uh, Westminster Seminary outside of Philadelphia. And I had very good teachers, and I learned a lot. But uh, after leaving there, I was in graduate school at Harvard, and I had, uh, you know, the same experience that many, many, many people have had of uh, recognizing that things were probably a bit more complicated than you will find within, let's say, an evangelical model, let's say, of how to understand the mm-hmm. Bible and 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 where the Bible came from and 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 the cultural forces behind it and and that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, dealing with things like biblical archaeology, uh, the ancient rootedness of the biblical text. Um, it became more, and I, I don't mean this in a negative way, it became more foreign to me. Mm-hmm. The Bible wasn't under my control as much as I, uh, you know, had probably uh, thought it was. And that really started a process of discovery of, gee, what is going on in the Bible? And and as I did that, you know, again, I, this is a journey that's been uh, duplicated by many, many people before and many people since. Um, realizing that uh, ways of thinking about the Bible that I had been taught were really out of bounds came to make tremendous amount of sense to me. And um, I began uh, in my own you know, mind and in my own heart a, a, a process of synthesizing you know, the faith that I had with, let's just say, data, with information that uh, was at my disposal in, in, in ways that uh, hadn't been at my disposal before and presented in very convincing ways, uh, ways that just make a lot of sense. So, um, you know, that, that started that process with me of thinking through, you know, the intellectual dimension of my own faith and, and bringing those two things in conversation uh because you know, people like me who go to graduate school, we tend to be intellectual journeyers. We 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 think, mm-hmm. and and that's sort of what makes us go. And a faith that doesn't connect on some level with integrity with our minds is a very difficult thing to swallow. So I wanted to pursue my faith further, and uh, you know what what came as a result are things like what you find in this book. And you talk about uh, being uh, given a choice of three doors to take, Uh, one meaning just kind of forget what you're learning, I guess, and Mm -hmm. kind of go back to the creed or or whatever, and and the other to kind of throw it all out, or or, or door number three. Yeah, well, door number three was, uh, you know, maybe it's time to rethink what the Bible is. Right. Uh, maybe it's time to rethink uh, how I have put the pieces together. See, maybe the problem isn't the information that I'm receiving and thinking through. Maybe the problem is that I I don't have an adequate place to let it sit because of how I've conceived of the Bible uh, beforehand. And, uh, you know, rather than having the stuff out there be the problem and the Bible is just this this movable thing that, of course, I understand. It's right there. It's in front of me. You know, who couldn't understand this? Um, We all know the Bible is from God, and we all know the Bible works this way or that way or that way. Uh, But I began being challenged in in how I put those pieces of the Bible together to think differently about the Bible. And, again, to have, I guess, that synthesis or the conversation between 
faith that that has you know biblical rootage, but also this information about the Bible that is, is stimulating and interesting, but doesn't always sit well with uh, you know conservative or evangelical ways of thinking. Yeah, and it's not only uh, something you're going through it personally with your own struggle, but you're also getting it externally. I mean, you even mentioned in your story that uh, uh, you, you lost a teaching position uh, later on. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but I mean, I, uh, the reason I mention that um, is because there's a real uh, pressure out there to conform to a certain way of viewing the text and the tradition itself. There, there definitely is, and not only in my situation uh, where I've been teaching at, at, at Westminster, I came back to where I um, had, had been a student to taught for 14 years. But it's not just there, it's actually an epidemic mm-hmm. that um, you know, I've seen in many, many, many places where um, boundaries are being protected very strongly. And the, the, the boundary for many, uh, really, I shouldn't say for many, I think for, for every conservative, evangelical, or fundamentalist school, one of those boundaries is particular ways of viewing the Bible that um, need to be maintained as is. And when you begin asking certain kinds of questions or coming to what-if sort of conclusions, what if this way rather than this way, uh, that can upset the system very quickly. And uh, once the system is upset, I mean, evangelicalism has a very tight intellectual coherence, so to speak, that uh, works as long as certain things are in place. I, I sometimes liken it to a Jenga tower. It's a really nice tower. You start pulling out a couple of the pieces, and before you know it, it becomes a bit wobbly. So the pieces can't be pulled out. They have to stay where they are. And, um, uh, you know, just temperamentally and intellectually, I am a pulling pieces out sort of person. And that's part of the intellectual quest as well, is to look at things from different angles and look at things in different ways. And, and that's, that's, that creates tensions between you know, certain types of people in certain schools. Yeah, and I'm thinking that as I'm reading your book, I'm imagining what the audience might be, and and I'm I'm thinking that it's an evangelical audience, perhaps someone very familiar with the Bible, uh, who, uh, but but it needs to kind of break out of some, maybe have some questions themselves. Boy, this doesn't seem right that God says, you know, go and kill all these Canaanites and men, women, mm-hmm. and children, and we're all good with that. Right. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, you know, the, the the audience that I've always envisioned for the book is not so much people settled in an evangelical paradigm or an evangelical model of faith, but it's people who are in that world who are already experiencing a lot of dissonance and are not wanting to sort of leave everything behind, but they need new language for thinking about things that really, frankly, trouble everyone, like, you know, why does God order the slaughter of men, women, and children so the Israelites can move in and take their land? That's a problem. I mean, that's, that's not a new one. That's a very, that's, goes back to the ancient church. Um, and uh, they, they find perhaps conventional explanations not terribly satisfying, and they want to think of other ways of processing that information. So I'm, I'm in that sense, it's a very constructive book for people who are already asking sort of, sort of uh, certain kinds of questions, but also for people who maybe because of failing to get adequate answers to, to some of those questions, not that my answers are always adequate, but uh, failing to get answers that are really satisfying to them, uh, maybe have left the faith or really are on just on very rocky terms with God. And um, I want to say to them, that's not necessary. 
uh, you, what you're rejecting, uh, the stumbling block, is uh, only one way of looking at things. There are other ways that I think are much more convincing. Yeah, as I'm reading your book, what I'm getting the idea and what I've often thought myself is that the problem is not the stories. It's not uh, the Bible itself, the texts. I, I get them. They're written in their time and in their place. But it's the authority uh, we place on this collection of stories or, or the way that they need to be interpreted somehow at face value. So God always ends up shining, the character God. Right. Um, or if maybe God doesn't wind up shining, it doesn't matter what he does. In the Bible, yeah. it's fine because God's doing it, and, right. and but that's that's a similar kind of thing that you're talking about, John, with the idea of biblical authority. Um, and you know, I'm not against by any means the notion of biblical authority, but authoritative for what, and authoritative for how? Those are much more pressing questions, and I think better questions to ask than simply assuming almost like a flat authority to the Bible because it's there, and we can't question it, we can't debate it. Um, you know, one thing I do, uh, I, I mentioned in the book a couple of times, is what I think perhaps Christian readers, especially evangelical readers, can learn from Judaism, which is um, it's okay to argue with the Bible. It's even okay to argue with God. You know, he's not against you. He's on your side. And, and you know, that puts some of these tensions that people feel maybe in a, in a slightly different light. The Bible is not... Uh, this, this this heavy, ponderous tome that has, quote, authority, and you just listen to everything and you can't question anything. It's more of a means of communing with God who loves you and who wants to talk with you, and sometimes you do question and you're not sure, and that's part of the spiritual journey that I think all people take. Yeah, and the idea is that perhaps we shouldn't put halos around texts that uh, don't deserve them. I mean, there are parts of the Bible. Just going back again, if you don't mind, that, that genocide no, no, no. Joshua thing. You know, I remember uh, sitting in my first seminary class at Princeton Seminary in the Old Testament 101, and the professor, I don't think she believed them either, but listed all of the justifications for why somehow this was a good plan. And, and they right. never, none of them made sense to me. I looked at that, and, 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 and yet I felt also bad by thinking this, but thinking, well, yeah. they probably just <laughs> made it up to justify, you know, their place, um, you right. know, these stories. Right. And, and you come to kind of a similar thing. I don't think it's quite that way, but in, uh, can you talk about that a little bit, how, how you came to sure. terms with the, that story? Yeah. I, the, um, I mean, I want, first of all, you know, what, what's really interesting and, uh, is in the Old Testament itself, you, you do have some diversity of thinking about how God feels about outsiders. You mm -hmm. know, um, you get the impression, certainly from books like Deuteronomy, and you mentioned Joshua, uh, you know, kill the Canaanites, take their land, outsiders are bad. Uh, there, there is other discussion in the Old Testament, like in the book of Jonah, where the Assyrians, who are Israel's arch enemy, um, are objects of God's mercy, not objects of God's wrath. Now, that's a little bit different because that's not Canaan. That's not the land of Canaan. That's a little bit different. But, um, you, know, you know, leaving that to the side, though, the, 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 the issue of uh, the Canaanite extermination, which is what I call it, which I think is the right word for it, um, there are uh, a couple of issues there that I think will come into play as we think through this more clearly, one of which is the archaeological evidence for the conquest, which essentially isn't there. There, there are a few maybe minor hints of, of towns that were destroyed, but 
there are 31 towns listed in the book of Joshua, and um, many of them weren't even occupied at the time when the conquest would have taken place. Um, many of those that were listed as actually destroyed, um, there's no evidence for destruction except for maybe two or three of them. So, you know, w one way of understanding this, and this is pretty common, I'm, this is not my own explanation, but uh, what you have is, is earlier memories on the part of the Israelites of, of some type of skirmishes and battles that became exaggerated at a later point in time as reflecting something of Israel's political ideology. And um, now that concerns some people, but I think that's a very valid way of explaining what those texts are doing. It is uh, expressing something later of Israel's monarchic um, uh, uh, moment in, in history where this is your land and outsiders are not welcome. Um, and, you know, Israelites were telling stories, uh, and, and, you know, many of them, I'd even say most of them, are rooted in some type of historical uh, echo or historical moment, but the, 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 these are stories that reflect something of Israel's present, not so much of things in the deep past. Yeah, and so of course they're writing stories, and the, and the character in them is is God doing these kinds of things. But these things are probably uh, at best an idealized history, and especially when you're writing about God, you're, you're kind of in the realm of I guess what literature, metaphor, or, or something. Right. Um, so, right. yeah, I wonder. Although you see there, John, you see one one thing there though is that I mean, you know the 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 response on the part of conservatives is I think misguided, but it's perfectly understandable. I thought the Bible was God's Word. I thought it was yeah. God speaking down to us and giving us information about himself, and we just have to accept it. Um, I understand, you know, the, the, uh, the tone and, and, and the, the, uh, the intention of, of a comment like that, but I, I do like to think of it in a very different way. And again, this is a long process of thinking through this, but uh, I, I, I do think that the way God speaks is, is through cultural moments and cultural expectations and through just the way people are. Uh, one of the phrases that I use in the book um, that uh, I actually heard from a seminary professor of mine is that the Bible, you know, is what happens when God lets his children tell the story. They are reflecting on God, it, it genuinely, authentically reflecting on God, but in thought categories that uh, are theirs and not from some alien place and certainly not from our time but from ancient times. And uh, so you, you, you tell stories in the ancient world of how, you know, we're better than those other people out there. Our God is on our side. We'll go to war. We'll beat you up. And if you win, that shows that your God is superior. Your God's a warrior. And if you lose, that doesn't mean your God is weak. That means there's some sin, there's some defect going on in your culture that you have to take care of so that God will be favorable towards you and give you victory in battle. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament recognizes that very quickly. That's, that's a lot of the rhetoric of, of the Old Testament. But, you know, again, this is part of what it means to talk about God in a tribalistic culture. And, you know, an analogy is, and it's only an analogy, but, uh, you know, um, middle school boys in the playground bragging about how great their fathers are. Hmm. Which, you know, they are great, and they love their fathers, and they're, and, and they're fantastic, but... You do tend to tell stories that have some connection in reality, but others may just be what you think you see or what you hope you see. 
um, you know, my dad, you know, he can lift a car or something. You know, I mean, that's that's getting a bit ridiculous. But, you know, my dad's really strong. I've mm-hmm. seen him do this, 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 and this. And he can run this fast and all these things. And those are ways of talking on the schoolyard where um, everyone will understand what you're saying. See, if you were to say, like I imagine myself at that age, if I were to say to uh, you know, friends in the schoolyard. Uh, you know, my dad helps out with the dishes. He wears an apron so he doesn't get himself wet. Um, you know, he sits up with me when I get sick at night, and he lets me cuddle with him. Um, that's actually really good stuff to say, but not in that culture, not in that context. That's that's not going to work. You know, that's that, that's right. I can be sure that I'd be communicating to my friends in the schoolyard. Your dad isn't very interesting, is he? He's certainly not very tough. And, um, you know, I, th- I think it works something like that similarly in, in the Bible that we are hearing the expressions, we're overhearing an ancient conversation of faith by people about the God that they worship and follow. And within the Old Testament itself, you see movement and development, and certainly in the New Testament, you see further movement and development in our understanding of who God is. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Peter Enns, and he is the author of The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. And I want to go a little bit more with you about God. You use the word God quite often uh, in the book. For example, you one phrase, you said, I, I was learning to trust God. Uh, what's the relationship between your trust in God, and the various characters called God in the Bible. Maybe you just kind of talked about that a little bit with the ancient tribe, but how, how do they connect, or do they? It's sometimes hard to connect, but, you know, as a Christian, I think the fundamental Christian conviction is that in Christ we see what God is like. Okay. Um, and sometimes that squares with uh, dimensions that we see elsewhere in the Bible. Sometimes it doesn't square that well. Um you know, I don't see Jesus talking about taking over Rome and kicking the Romans out so the Israelites can move back in and take their land. He doesn't mm-hmm. talk like that. Um, I don't see Jesus saying things like stone this adulteress, even though we read that in the law. So, you know, the the, the you see this dramatic movement and tension within the Bible itself about how God is portrayed and God is described. And so it's not various gods in the Bible, it's it's various portrayals of what God is like, and Christians believe in Christ we have the picture that we go with. This is the standard, this is how we think about God, and God is a forgiving God and a loving God. He's a righteous God, he's a true God, he doesn't mess around, but he fundamentally loves the world that he created, and he's come after it to save it. You mentioned that your audience in the beginning was perhaps some people who came from an evangelical worldview. Now, many people listening to this program and and, and might who might be interested also uh, might be a secular audience, and they might or they might just you know have been done with the Bible. I mean, they they look at it and they realize, oh, it's crazy stories. Elisha, you know, curse has the bears kill the children, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, and right. all the all these stories that come out, and and so they might say, you know, what's the point of it now? Um, how do you communicate in that in that sense? Because in a sense, we're moving to a more secular world, perhaps, and and people are right. are saying, you know, what's the value in this book anyway? Right. I think the best way to communicate that is to show them by the quality of your life. 
And that's not a wimpy thing to say. That's a very difficult thing to say. Um, I, I don't know if the first thing out of my mouth would be, let me show you how awesome the Bible is. Yeah. The Bible is appropriated by people of faith, and I want to embody that as best as I can, as imperfect as I am, but I want to embody that. Um, there's, a, there's a very common saying um, among evangelicals. I've, I've heard it for my whole life, and there's the, it, it's, it's a good saying. But, you know, be careful how you act towards other people, especially towards non-Christians, because you may be the only Bible they ever read. And I tell my students, I say, that's not good enough. It's actually worse than that. Be careful how you act towards other people, because you might be the only Jesus they ever see. That's the point. I'm not Bible. I'm trying to embody the person of Christ, and, and as best as I can, which is not perfect, but that's a much harder calling. So, you know, the Bible can come into the picture at some later time, but that's not the first line of defense or, or attack, so to speak, when, when you're speaking with others, because, you know, uh, the Bible becomes an obstacle very quickly for people. You've got to get these stories. You've got to see it this way, this way, and that way, and that way, and then you can come to understand. I think God apprehends us much more immediately than that way. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and I think about the biblical stories, I'm sometimes surprised uh, at, 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 in many ways, at their liberating message. Now, it, there's a lot of noise there. There's a lot of stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I'm not there with. But, I mean, there's, there's a, you know, a God, perhaps uh, the, the character God of the oppressed, that, that liberation yes. and freedom, or a criticism, uh, criticizing empire, or economic justice right. is also within that text, too. Yes, I think so. And, um, it's easy for some of those things to get buried uh, in the the noise, as you say, that's around it. But, you know, m- many people have said, and I, I fundamentally agree, I might disagree on here or there, but fundamentally I agree with the idea that in the Bible we see um, very much encultured narratives about God, but look for the countercultural dimension. Mm-hmm. Look, look for what is there that might surprise somebody in the ancient world. It might not surprise you, but try to think anciently as best as we can. I mean, for example, um, uh, kings in the ancient world could pretty much speak for God and do sort of what they wanted to do. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but there really wasn't too much of an authority other than the manipulation of gods. Um, The Old Testament, the prophetic tradition especially, holds kings' feet to the fire saying, mm-hmm. you have someone over you, and he's other than you. He's not you, right? Even though in, 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 in the ancient world, kings were sons of God. And even in, in the Psalms, in Psalm 2, David is called God's son. There's still, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's at least a, a, a dimension of difference there between uh, whether, whether kings had a blank check that they could write more mm-hmm. or less as they wanted to, and, 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 and the biblical story doesn't go like that. They're, they're actually subject to a God who's other, who comes down, who interacts, who reveals. And this is, um, you know, your standard two kings. You, you're, you're subject to the law, which is God's law. It's not your law. It's mine. Peter ends my guest. We're just out of time, Peter, the author of Bible. The Bible tells me so. Why defending Scripture has made us unable to read it. I, I highly, uh, I highly recommend this book. This was exciting. There's a liberating sense, isn't there, when you when you move out of the sense of how you have to read it to actually being able to take it for what it says. 
I think it's liberating. It's relaxing. You can take a breath that, you know, you don't have to get the book right. You can try, you should study, but it doesn't all come down to the Bible. It comes down to God, and those two things are not the same thing. All right, great. Thank you so much for the book and for spending time with me today on Religion for Life. You bet, John. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Religion for Life at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Sheck. I'm the minister at the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is FPC. Elizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including a podcast to this show and all of the shows at religionforlife.com. Also, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.